Our loving Lord Jesus, that is our prayer to you. As Heidi said, that you would make us resilient people. And as we have sung in these last two songs, that regardless of what happens, that we would have your resilient joy. That you'd make our faith in you and trust in you resilient. That you'd make our love for you resilient. It may get knocked down, but that we would immediately be picked up. Make our love for each other resilient. And do that strange and crazy thing with us that other people just aren't going to get. They're just not going to understand. And that is the hope and the anticipation and the sense of adventure of life with you and life together with you, that that would be resilient. And may it be so stark and so obvious that people would ask, what is going on with you? Thank you for being here, Lord Jesus. And thank you for rising from the dead and making it possible for us to have that power of your joyful resilience by dying on the cross and forgiving our sins and rising from the, uh, from the dead to prove that you've got the power over anything that might come our way. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Uh, please be seated. Um, that's kind of what I want to talk about today um, is uh, resilience. I want to do sort of a little uh, family moment here, a little pastor moment. Um, I've been away for a week and a half. I was at uh, national board meetings uh, for our family of churches, our denomination, uh, which board, you can spell that two ways, I've discovered, B-O-A-R-D or B-O-E-B-O-R-E-D. So um, I thought, thought that up while I was sitting there. But uh, then I was spent about four or five days uh, working at Wheaton College and submitting some stuff for publication, but that's another story. Um, but it's good to be back with you, and I always think of that. I always look back and think, man, how do we get back to Eastridge? I, that's really true. And, and so what I want to just say to you is I want you more than anything else to be resilient people. I want us to be a community of resilient people. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, you can knock us down, but we're getting back up. You can have a difficulty, but we're, we're moving on. I mean, it, we're, we're following what Christ has for us. So that's really, regardless of the future, what I, I want for us and long for us. And because of that, I'm going to say this. I'm going to ask everybody to be here for the next four weeks, starting next week. I guess that would be five weeks. And I don't usually do this because I don't want to overuse it and I want to mean it when I say it, okay? I don't ask you to do that. But even if you can't be here, if I'm already too, too far behind and uh, you've got some, uh, you know, things you promised to do with somebody, watch it online. Don't just, you know, ease your conscience and say, okay, I'll watch it online. This is so critical to our life together. We're going to go through a series called His Resilient People. And uh, it, it sort of defines the next thing. You see joy being resilience in Philippians and then His Resilient People. There's a reason for the madness in the way I plan these sermon series. So, but this is about the vision of where things are, uh, what's next and what's ahead and why we should be resilient. So I just want to ask you to be here for that, uh, if at all possible, every single week. And at the end, there's a big woohoo payoff because uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. We do it every year, uh, and I'm just going to leave it at that, but you're going to want to be here for that. So the next four weeks, especially the next three weeks, I just want to encourage you and ask you to be here uh, leading up to Thanksgiving. Uh, and, and that really fits into where we're going today, because what Paul is going to do in this last episode of the letter to the Philippians, he's going to describe where that resilience comes from in many, many ways. Let me just do a quick review. In fact, I'll do it in a sentence in a minute. Paul is talking about having this resilient joy 
Basically, the same thing, this, this resilience in our life comes from this joy that is deeper than happiness and higher than our circumstances. So regardless of what we got, we've got this, this resilient joy. And you might ask yourself, well, where does that come from? Well, you need, some, you need some courage, yes, Paul talks about that. You need some good leadership, yes, Paul talks about that. You need, um, uh, you know, s- some resources to live it up. But that's just a small part of it. Yes, Paul is talking about that. That's true. But here's a summary of Philippians in a sentence. Joy is actually the real-life resilience that is found in the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ has forgiven our sins, saved us, and not just, you know, said, okay, you're saved, now go off so I can save somebody else. No, he's transformed everything and made life a whole new adventure and a whole new world. And that's what makes it resilient. And Paul is going to land the plane in this letter talking about, practically speaking, what that looks like and how it happens. And in the process, what he does is, I I think, this dawned on me when I was studying uh, uh, Philippians 4, beginning at verse 10. I, I, I thought, what he's doing here is talking about living apologetics. Not apologizers, but that we become living proof, living defenses for the fact that Jesus is alive and that he's alive in here and he's alive in us, that that's actually possible. That kind of resilience is what he's talking about. So just turn with me then to to Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 10, and uh, see if you think uh, I'm on to something here, or if if this is what what you uh, would say that he is doing. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. So Paul's already got his own sense of resilient joy, right? He's saying, I'm not telling you to do something that I am not experiencing myself. And where he gets it is he gets it from them. Look at this. He gets it from the community of believers in Philippi over the, over the miles, over the distances, over the time that he hasn't seen them. Even over that, he still gets this resilient joy through them, uh, from God, but through them. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. First of all, when he says, I, you have renewed your concern for me, the word renewed there, I, I love this. It could be translated bloom again. You know why I, why I like bloom again? Because I'm a late bloomer. If the high schoolers are left in here, I hope you're not, you're downstairs. I didn't take one book home or study at home at all, all through high school. So when I got to college, I was... I had study habits of a sixth grader, so I had to get going and bloom. I was a late bloomer. But these guys had bloomed again because previously they had given to Paul in his ministry, and they were the only church that did up in Macedonia, northern Greece. And, and, and then they got so stricken by poverty, they stopped. But then they made the decision when they got a little bit more resources, just a little bit, and they could kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. They didn't wait till they got all the way out of the tunnel. They said, we don't want to be, be uh, imprisoned by a poverty mentality, so we're going to help Paul again in the midst of not having much. In fact, if you want to read about this, just look it up in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Paul talks about the Philippian church. He calls them the Macedonians there. But they were in this situation. But Paul is talking here about, now by the time he writes this letter, hey, you've been able to do this. And he says, look, I'm not asking for more money. I'm not asking for more of your resources because I have learned to be content in whatever you know, it, it is. And, and, and he has 
this word learned is the word I've been initiated in. I, I've been, and I, I've, it's possible, it's not something you're born with. I mean, this is a word of real hope. You don't have to work really hard. You don't have to, but Paul says, I've been able, I've been trained by Jesus. I've, I've learned how to do this. And then he does two uh, I knows. He says, I know what it's like to be in poverty and I know what it's like to be, you know, uh, have all the resources I need. And what he's saying here is he's saying, I have learned that there's a danger on both sides of that scale. In fact, he says, basically what he's saying is this, if you have less, if you don't feel like you have enough, then you're in danger of becoming discouraged with God. But if you have more than you need, you're in real danger of feeling like you're self-sufficient apart from God, that you don't need God. And that's a lot worse. And that's the danger that we face a lot today in our world and in our culture and in our time. That we don't lean into him the way we could or should because of that. And so Paul says there's a better way. There's a third way rather than more or less, rather than pessimism or optimism. There's a better way, and that way is contentedness. And I've learned contentedness, he's saying. It's not that you have to somehow, you know, be born with it or whatever else. He says, I'm, I've learned how to do this. It's possible. There's a way to be resilient in this, regardless of your, your, your situation and, and where you are. And, and this, this idea of being um, <clears throat> contented was an idea that the Stoic philosophers had in his day. You ever heard of Stoics? If you, if you ever read uh, Acts chapter uh, 17, when Paul's talking to the philosophers, there's two kinds of philosophers that were the main kinds of philosophers in his day. It was the Stoic philosophers, who were sort of like Mr. Spock, you know, everything's by logic and so forth. And, and then there were the Epicurean philosophers who were, you know, whatever's pleasurable, that's what you live your life for. Well, he, this, this contentedness was sort of like the Stoic, it was, a, it was a word the Stoic philosophers used, but it was like a logical thing. It was sort of like the, the Stoics were sort of like philosophical walking dead people. Because it was sort of like they kind of ignored everything else. I'm a, I'm a self-contained unit. I will logic my way through this whole thing kind of thing, that kind of thing. And now, today... You notice there aren't really any Stoic philosophers anymore, right? Because that doesn't work. Have you met any Jesus followers, though, who, do, who are reasoned, well-reasoned? Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of logic today is on hard times. There's an assault, even in philosophy today, on logic. I remember way back when I was in college. We won't say how far back. But I, I, was in, I was in philosophy class, in logic class, and in logic class, our professor, who was a really great guy, Mr. Casey, he was an atheist, but a lovable atheist. But still, there were four or five of us that sat in the back, we called ourselves Murderer's Row, who were just trying to ask him questions about stuff he's saying. So one day in class, we come to the issue of morals, and he, he, he basically says, there are three reasons for morals. You may, you may have heard me talk about this. Three th reasons for morals. Uh, that people hold their morals. Three bases. One is that the divine being gives you your morals. Another is, is you choose your own morals or you're the community, the, the people you live with, you get your morals from them. And then he said something really weird. He said, personally, I don't hold to any one of those four foundations for morals. And so I looked down the row, murderer's row, and they said, your turn. I said, oh, okay. Okay, so he says, to sell. What do you want? I said, you just said there were three bases for morals and that's all there is. There is no more. That's right. And you, then you said, you don't hold any, any one of those three. Is there a fourth one or something? He goes, no. Basically, what I do with morals is this. And he took a piece of paper and he shoves it off the edge of his desk. 
class dismissed. <laughs> because it, was, it, it wasn't logical. We were in mystical class, but it's sort of random. What he's basically saying is, I'm kind of random with my morals. And, and, and that's sort of the assault. But, but what Paul is, is, is saying here <clears throat> is that contentedness isn't that. Contentedness is alive. It's not random. The, the, the biblical contentedness, the contentedness in Jesus is something far, far more powerful than that. And he says there's a secret to it. Secret's kind of a powerful word today, isn't it? People like secrets. You know, we like to find the secrets in the Bible, in the numbers and whatnot, right? And, and if you think about it, speaking of numbers, if you think about a continuum of, you know, um, completely freaking out and having real peace and contentedness on the other side, mathematically, there's a point at which that along that continuum, when you stop freaking out and you start be, you know, having a contentedness. And Paul said, I found the, I've found the secret of living in the other half of that, in, in this contentedness of this contentedness regardless the sense of joy regardless of what happens. I found the secret. Now, when I saw this word secret and I realized how popular secret is, I, I, I went on my, Google, on my uh, Amazon and I searched for books on um, secret. Okay? So I just thought I'd share with you. It's quite fascinating. Of course, there was a famous book, which is sort of a new agey bong smoking book, <clears throat> um, <laughs> about, that, called The Secret. Right? It was, it was very popular because everybody wanted to know the secret. They had no idea what the secret was, but they wanted to know it. Okay. And then there's, there, there's that book, and then there's The Secret of My Success. There's Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. So Halloween action there. Secrets from the Grave. Secret Life of Bees. That sounds fascinating. Secret Baby Box Set. The YouTube Secrets. Did you know there's secrets in YouTube? And then they had a, a list of a bunch of books that didn't have secret in the name, but were about secrets, like The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality. But here's my personal favorite. How to attract money using your mind. Okay, I got some projects for this church. Now, just think with me here for a minute. Okay, come on. Come on. But secrets are something that, 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 that attract us, but Paul's not saying it just to attract us. He's saying it this way. He's saying when you have joy in being a Christian, Regardless of what your life you know, dishes out to you, that actually becomes proof or an apologetic that Jesus is alive in you. When you have that joy anyway, we just sang about it. That's, it's possible. When Paul said, I've enjoyed, I mean, I've, I've discovered the secret and learned the secret, so I'm not caught between the two continuums of plenty and want. I'm, 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 I've learned to live above and beyond that regardless and experience the way of Jesus. And so it's because of things like that. He says, I know that you know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation and well-fed and hungry, uh, living in plenty and in want. There's the continuum. And so then he goes on to one of those famous uh, refrigerator magnet verses that a lot of people use. And it's, it's, it's a powerful verse uh, even if we've kind of overused it for a lot of different things. Look at verse 13. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. A lot of people have that as their life verse. It's not a bad life verse. It's a good life verse. I almost wasn't going to use this because the question is, is, Dwayne, how do you know that? But did you know that that's Justin Bieber's 
life verse. Not only that, but his ex-girlfriend, Selena Gomez, has had it tattooed on a part of her body. How did you know that? Never mind. The question is, is she have, does she have that tat because she still likes Justin Bieber or because it's really her life first? Anyway, forget about all that. But the point is, is that there's real strength possible in Jesus is what he's saying. There's real reg- resilient uh, strength. That kind of strength, man, that is, that's joy regardless. That's That's powerful. That's real resilience. I thought about this verse, actually, this week when I had coffee with a friend of mine that we've been trying to get together uh, for a number of weeks now. But a week and a half ago, I saw a story about him on the cover of the Oregon, uh, OregonLive.com. Uh, it was on the Oregonian. Uh, it was on KGW. Maybe you saw it. His name is Bill. He's the pastor of um, Milwaukee Covenant Church. And uh, Last week, when I saw this story, I said, okay, we are having coffee next week. Because here's what happened. He was out hunting on the other side of Mount Hood in the Womack uh, area, only way out in the sticks up toward the mountain. And he and a buddy were, were hiking there, and they were separated by about a mile. They kind of split up, and they were looking for deer. But as he, as he comes to an edge of a clear cut that he had been to before, he heard this thumping going on on the other side of the clear cut in the woods, and he thought, that's weird. That does not sound like a deer jumping away. So he went into the other side of the clear cut, and as he opened up, came in and passed the trees a little bit, and he could see into the woods a little bit, he sees about 100, about 100 yards away, he sees a cougar jump over a log, a big one. Now that's unusual, because usually cougars, the first thing you see is they're on you, like that poor lady that had that happen to her uh, up in Welch's few weeks ago. But he saw this thing and he thought, you know, I better get out of here. So he starts to back up, but as soon as he backs up, not one cougar, but three cougars pop over that log and their ears are down and they're hissing and they start coming at him like this. Yeah. I said, Bill, you must have been freaking out. He says, no, that was the weird thing. He said, I was so calm. I was not jittery. I was just thinking, okay, what's the best approach here? Because I'm in trouble. I need to do something. I'm going to have to probably take one of these out. And at that point, I just got to say, is it PC to say even men pastors can be real men? I mean, come on, it's just like, wow. I mean, good night. Well, he raised his scope, and he, he, about 50 yards away, he took down one, the middle cougar. And the other two went jumping back into the woods. And he said, Dwayne, it was at that point that I started getting jittery because I wasn't going to go picked the cougar up. I went down to get my friend who tried to talk him out of going to get the cougar. But it's all the way down. I'm looking over my shoulder wondering, are those other two around here somewhere? And then I started shaking, realizing what had happened. I said, wow, where'd you get that strength? What was that? How did you do that? He says, well, here's the deal. When I got home and told my wife, I said, she said, you're never going hunting again, right? She nope, didn't say that. She said, Bill, out of all the times I have had you go hunting, I've never worried a bit, but for some reason this morning, I just had this strong urge to get on my knees and pray for you while you were hunting. Coincidence? I don't think so, but whatever, you, you figure it out. I mean, that's, that's the kind of strength at the moment that you need. And not that we're supposed to be, you know, cougar-killing people. It's not, it's not, by the way, he had a permit, Okay. Fish and wildlife apparently are handing those out because there's too many cougars around. But 
This is a living apologetic that he's talking about. Because what he's saying is, is when you lean in completely to Jesus, when you, when you have the kind of faith that leans into Jesus, regardless of how you feel about yourself, when you lean in that way, he will give you the strength that you need to flourish for him. Regardless of the situation and the circumstances. When you lean into him, regardless of those, how you feel about yourself at the moment, he gives you the strength because it's him. It's not me. It's not you. It, it's, it's the reality that, that together with Jesus and us together with Jesus, we become a living apologetic. And that's why Paul goes on to say this. Look at verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even then, when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. He's talking about that 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5 thing. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire more is that it be credited to your account. Now, when we hear this thing about being credited to your account, I know in our you know, postmodern kind of minds that we all kind of breathe that air. Some of our sort of cynicism, our, our uh, questions, our, our uh, you know, Paul, what do you really mean? Because credit, like credit to what account? And what kind of credit is it to me? And, and, and I know for some people what goes off is, oh, Paul, you're just a sneaky first century televangelist, all right? You know, you're telling people, hey, give me your 1995 and I'll send you this really cool hanky. You know, that kind of stuff. And, 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 but that's not what he's doing, not at all. What he's doing is exemplifying what he says in chapter 2 that says, hey, think of others in your community of believers. Think of others more than you think of yourself, Think of their interests first. That's what builds community. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I don't need your money. I'm okay. God's got me. Even here in prison, I'm good. But if you would just be willing to, to you know, share with the, to the ministry some of your resources, I know you don't have a lot, but whatever you can spare, if, I, if you could just do that, you're going to get eternal credit for it. What's eternal credit? Does it have anything to do with right now? Does it have anything? The answer is, yes, it does. You see, he's saying here is that what he's acknowledging here is everybody has a desire for affirmation. Everybody has a desire that somebody will give them a little bit of credit, right? That's a healthy thing. That's not a bad thing. What happens is when it gets into our fallen world, our ambitions, our desire for credit, for affirmation, it gets all screwed up. It goes haywire because that becomes the thing we go after. That becomes the thing that we follow. That becomes the thing we hope. And Paul says, I'm not saying you should hope from that. I'm just saying as you give, you get credit. And besides that, it, it releases you from, from the tug of those, that other kind of credit and affirmation that is only temporary and doesn't go anywhere. But, but when you have that kind of hankering, God wants to do something significant in your life. So consider it, that that's what he's asking. That's why he's asking for those monetary gifts or whatever, or your time, or your friendship with somebody. You see, what he's saying is this. When you give out of Jesus' gifts to you, 
regardless of your socioeconomic stature and status, he gives you credit more powerful than a bank. He gives you credit that can be drawn on at any one of those moments when you need resilient joy. And oh, by the way, that hankering for credit, that desire that I get some credit for my life and know that I'm on purpose and know that I've got some reason for being here, that desire, guess who put it there? It's your creator so that you would be drawn to him. So you, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing in the hands of God. It's a good thing, if you will. And it's something to be enthused about. But look, look how he goes on with this thought, this credit business. I have received full payment and have more than enough. That received full payment, by the way, is a business term. There's several business terms in here. And what this means is I have the receipt right here. I've got everything I need. I got all the full payment. I got it. It's, it's credited to your account. Here's the receipt. And have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. So Epaphroditus came bringing, bearing gifts. They are a fragrant offering, which is an Old Testament metaphor for the offerings that would, you know, burn the animals on there. And, and uh, the fragrant offering, Paul is an Old Testament guy because that was his Bible and he was on his way to being a Pharisee before he became a Jesus follower. An acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Now, now we, 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 got, we got to pause there for a second because I know what happens and what goes off in our minds, what goes off in our heads. We, we look at that and we say, okay, pleasing to God. See, in our society, it's kind of a Freud, Freudian thing. We kind of let it slip in. We weren't even paying attention. Pleasing anybody is sort of like an immoral thing, right? You should be an autonomous unit. You should not be having to please anybody, right? That's kind of how we view it. And I get it. I get why. Because some people, uh, because of their upbringing and terrible things happen, you know, they're still trying to please mommy and daddy into their 40s and 50s, right? And that's not good because control freakiness is a sin wherever it lands. On the other hand, if you are the parent of preschoolers, pleasing mommy and daddy is a whole different thing in a different light. So that's okay. But the reality is, is that if anybody deserves us pleasing, if anybody deserves control in this life and our world, it is God. So you can't throw him out with the rest of the stuff. And Paul is saying, no, this is, this is something that, that ultimately is pleasing to God when you give of yourself, when you are willing in the midst of whatever your circumstances are, even if they're difficult circumstances, when you still have faith in Christ, when you still live for him, and, you, and, and people are going, wow, where did that resilience come from? That's an offering to God. And it's pleasing to him. And that should be a goal in our life. What makes you ask, okay, what is this faith anyway? Because as, as Hebrews 11:6 6 says, it's impossible to please God without faith. So it would be a good thing to have some, know what this faith is, right? Have some understanding in that kind of resilient faith. Well, one of the things that has happened in, and I don't know how many decades it's been in, in, the, in the modern church, one of the things that happened is when Christians think of faith, there's this phrase that floats around. People will say, I'm, I'm having faith that God's going to answer my fleece. I'm putting out this test. I'm putting out this fleece and asking God to show me if he really means what he said and what he wants to do. And, and the place that comes from is an obscure passage in the Old Testament. Comes from the book of Judges. 
If you know anything about judges, it's all about these judges whom God, uh, uh, or, or whom God uses some of them. Some of them are horrible judges. I mean, you kind of got a mixed bag of these leaders of Israel that, you know, some of them are really nasty, wacko judges. Some of them are kind of a mixed bag. They're on and off again. And then the other people are just normal human beings that have a hard time with faith, but God uses them anyway. And there are a couple of ones that are just amazing people of faith, like Deborah and Barak, people like that. But most of them are just kind of, I don't know, about being leaders. But that's all God's got to work with. And one of those guys that all God's got to work with is a guy named Gideon. And God tells Gideon, this basic kind of guy, I think he's a, a, a grain grinder or something like that. God says, hey, I want you to go fight with the armies of Israel. I want you to go fight um, the Midianites. And oh, by the way, I only want you to use 300 people. And he finds that out later, okay? And, and so Gideon, not being a man of extraordinary faith, says, God, if you would just uh, do this thing with the fleece that I'm going to lay on the ground, let me read this for you. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, if that's what you're going to do, then look, I will place a wool fleece, you know, sheep's skin, on the threshing floor, if there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground around it is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day and he squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew and a bowl full of water. And of course, Gideon followed God. Oh, wait, no, he didn't. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test. Remember that word. With the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. And Gideon had no more excuses. You see, here's the thing. That's not an act of faith. Two things. Be very careful about making an, uh, an obscure text of Scripture something that you build theology on. If it's something that's kind of questionable, look at other Scripture to see how it fits. Because there's nowhere else in Scripture that says you can test God like this. In fact, Deuteronomy 6.16 says, no way are you to uh, do the, test God. In fact, Jesus, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, when he's being tempted by the devil, quotes that verse and says, uh -uh, you're not supposed to test the Lord your God. But God lets him buy with it, apparently, because he really wants the Midianites dealt with. But that's not an act of faith. It's an act of resistance. If we demand from God all the answers before we step out in faith, that's resistance. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you... Uh, you be pleasing to God. You be a person who, who gives even though, you know, of yourself and does what God asks of you even beforehand. It may seem like a risk to you. But here's, here's what he's saying. Look at this on the screen. When you risk, in, in scare quotes, when you risk, because it seems like a risk to us, but in God's economy it's not a risk at all. When you risk to follow Jesus fully regardless of the age in which you live, what time, what age, you know, how scientific or whatever your world is, our world is. Regardless of age in which you live, your faith will be empowered by what you see next. That's what resilience is. Because we don't know how God's going to work this out. We just do what he's going to, in, in faith, what he asks us to do. And then all of a sudden, whoa, voila, 
He fulfills it. He, he, he carries it on or, or does something we totally don't expect. So that's, that's God's currency. That's how God, in his, his world, in his, his economy, he's not looking for uh, uh, those things like dollars and cents. He's looking for real, resilient faith. Whether it, whether it involves our, our lives, whether it involves our dollars and cents, whether it involves whatever, that's what he's looking for. For people who will say, God, I'm ready to jump up. You just say how high. Not, not foolish, not unreasonable, not, not, uh, but, but not having to have every T crossed and I dotted because we, we know that God is calling us to move forward in, in something. And that's exactly what kind of thing these Philippians were exemplifying and Paul is calling out. And that's important because look at what it says next. And this is another one of those famous verses, verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Boy, now think about that. God's riches, that's a big pile of riches. That's more of riches than I can imagine. And I can dream up a lot. That's huge. That God will meet our needs out of those riches, which raises two questions, okay? One is, if you're Jesus followers, do you actually believe this verse? And the second one is, what needs are we talking about? Well, this is sort of the end, sort of the summary of the whole letter. Um, let's think back of what, what Paul has been saying. You know, when we think about the end of life and that there's a sudden stop at the end called death, but Paul, Paul says in chapter 1, hey, but you don't need to be worried or, or freaking out about that because to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. Well, and then chapter 2, he says, hey, you know, real community, being there for one another, that's how God means to live our lives. In fact, that's, that's how God infuses resilient joy into our individual lives when we as a community, as a church, as people, the people of Jesus, look out for each other that way and we become one mind. In fact, that's how, chapter 2, we become uh, more and more like Jesus. It's through each other. People we may never have hung out with before, but we go, you know what? God's doing something amazing in them. And, and then they look at you and God's doing something amazing in you. And together, you know, when you need it, they help you. And you, they, they need it, you help them. That's real community, he talks about. And then in chapter 3, he says there's a power, a specific power. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that makes that possible, resilient joy. And you, you, you are already citizens of heaven, end of chapter 3. Because you have this, this citizenry to look forward to, but it actually changes the way you think about every day. If chapter 4, verse 8, as we heard last week, you think on those things and th instead of all the problems and all the things you got to do, you think on that first thing, what God has for you and the wonderful place and community of believers he's given you to live that out. That's that's what he, he means by this business of those needs are met. All the big ones are met by the power and the glory of, of God. And if those big ones are met, don't you think that God can do what he wants? You see, this, the, the word that just kind of comes out in my mind, it's not in the text, but the word on this whole last, you know, um, 13 verses of, of 
the letter of Philippians, is anticipation. It's almost like Paul saying, can you see it? Man, I can hardly wait to see what God does next. I was thinking about that, anticipation. I was thinking about this, the end of Philippians, the riches that are in Christ Jesus, that he will supply our needs. When I heard early this week about you know, a, a man who was a pastor to a lot of people, he was a writer and an author, went home to be with Jesus. He died. His name is Eugene Peterson. Maybe you've heard of him. He's written a lot of books that have been helpful to a lot of Christians. He, he, if you've ever heard of the message um, paraphrase of the Bible, he did that. He just looked at his Hebrew Bible and his Greek Bible. <clears throat> he said, that's what it means. And he kind of wrote it down in a, you know, up-to-date language. It wasn't meant to be a study Bible, but it's very helpful in the way his insights come through. But he, he uh, it was 82 or 84, something like that, but the last year or so he'd been struggling. He hadn't been public because he'd been struggling with a little bit of dementia and so forth. But his son reported in Christianity Today, he said, my dad was clear as a bell those last few hours. In fact, what he was saying was stuff like this. Oh, look at that. Wow. Oh, that's beautiful. Wow. But you know what his last two words were? I hope I have the presence of mind. His last two words were, let's go. Right? That's what Paul's kind of saying. He said, I don't know exactly what's that. I can get a glimpse of it, and it looks pretty cool. Let's go. Not just into heaven and into eternity, but let's go into tomorrow and the next day. This sort of resilient joy that gives you a sense of anticipatory adventure. That's what... Philippians has been building up to all along. Joy regardless. It's the very definition of joyful resilience. It's, it's the kind of thing that says, you know, it's, a, it's this, this community, this church family, that it would be a place where we anticipate God doing some amazing things, where we, where we you know, it's, it's common for us to say, I can hardly wait to see what God does. Or, or, or uh, in our, our lives we say, you know, Lord, I'm ready I'm ready. I'm with you, Jesus. I'm with you, church. Whatever it is next, whatever it is next that is the adventure, whatever it is next to fulfill the purpose that you put me here, the, the, the purpose you put us here, let's go. That, I think, is what Paul's been trying to get through all along. And that, doesn't that sound incredible? That, that, according to the Bible, is what it means to live Christianly. But Paul takes all of that and wraps it up and squeezes it into these last three verses in an amazing way. Let me just cover that with you real quick. Verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That word forever and ever, that means ages of the ages. It's a Greek idiom. It's a common phrase in Paul's day. It means forever, but it also means Whatever age in which you live, it doesn't matter. You could be living in the pre-Christian age. You could be living in the post-Christian age. You could be in the post-civility age. Have you seen that lately? And I grew up, as I always say, with post-toasties. You could be in that age. Whatever age, this is timeless truth. To that God, verse 21, greet all God's people. In Christ Jesus. When he says all God's people, he's speaking of individuals. And brothers and sisters who are with me, uh, 
send greetings. All God's people, that's all of us now, I'll show you this in a minute, here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. I got to show you this in the uh, the English Standard Version. It's a it's a good version. I, I like the NIV, but this in this particular verse, it gets it a little more literally and a little more straight. What Paul's saying, he says, "Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, individual." You know what that means? That means if you are a Jesus follower, if He has forgiven your sins and washed you clean, you're a saint. As far as that's New Testament words for Christian, Jesus follower. You're a saint. You mean I'm right up there with Mother Teresa? Yes, as far as God's concerned. But together, we're a whole bunch of saints because it says, Brother, who are with me, greet you. All the saints greet you. That, that's how we act with each other. You know, I've told you a lot lately over the summer and others, Chris and Ben and leaders, and uh, I've always tried to say this because I mean it and it just comes out. And whenever I'm away, I think of this. I really do. I'm not blowing sunshine in your face. I love you guys. I miss you guys when I'm not here. But you know what really gets me going, really gives me the joy, the resilience of I got to get back there, is because I'm starting to see that that's, you love each other too that you're loving one another, that you're being there for one another, that you're, you're saying, hey, we're on this journey together. We're, that it's starting to really happen. And when that really gets going full swing, oh, man, that's way better than anything else. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I'm going to call the band out here, but I want to call out one more thing that's in this passage. Paul says, look, not only do all God's people send you greeting, but Caesar's household sends you greeting. He's talking about this joy, this resilient joy that is life-altering, culture-rattling, society-shaking kind of joy that God does when his people are together like that. And that's what I'm hoping we can pray for. That's what I want us to pray for. Because you see, when he says Caesar's household, Here's what happened. I almost guarantee you, when they first read Philippians, I don't, I don't have documentation of this. I'm just, I'm, I'm almost sure that this is true. Because Caesar's household was Caesar's household. That's like a big bad, you know, dictatorship or something, and the soldiers that keep it going. When, 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 he, when they first read this letter and he said, and Caesar's household, those believers in Caesar's household send you greetings also. There was a gasp, <gasps> and somebody must have said out loud, did he just say Caesar's household could be Christians? Sharon, he just said that Caesar's household, they found Jesus. What in the what? Shh, quiet, Dwayne. You always, if it's in here, it's always coming out here with you. <laughs> what does he mean? And, and who is Caesar's household for us, and how does that work? Well, we're going to start talking about that next week. So I encourage you to come back and hear all about it because that's what it is. A little anticipation there. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this letter. 
I thank you for Paul. I thank you that it's a letter to us. I thank you for this church family. I thank you for how we're already seeing resilient joy happening in this community. And I pray for all the, the church communities around us that there would be something going on in Portland. That people would go, what is it with you people anyway? How do you have that kind of joy? And that we would have the courage and the strength that is in Christ Jesus, verse 13, to just tell them, not us, it's you. And thank you, Jesus, for that promise. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Thank you for promising to meet our needs out of your glorious pile of riches. And that it's, it's not a Santa Claus kind of thing, but it's, it's much bigger than financial things, although you do that too. But Lord, thank you that you are the one who says, hey, I'm going to be with you, and together I'm really going to be with you. And may that just sink into us as we go forward into this next season, this next time. We anticipate to see wonderful things from you. Thank you for being with us here today. We love you, and that's why we pray in your name. Amen.